This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. On this program, we have been and continue to be great advocates for travel. And uh, in conjunction with that, we're going to talk about a travel book today. But it's not one that tells you about what you may expect to find in Kathmandu. No, we're going to talk to author Christopher Arns about his contribution to the Moon Handbook series. The latest edition being that of Sacramento and the Gold Country. And yes, we'll even talk a little bit about Davis. That'll be coming up in our second segment today. I do note that uh, upon embarking on a world tour 25 years ago, at one point I had eight of the Lonely Planet series guides in my backpack, fearful that I would not be able to find them along the way, which was a good move because I wouldn't have been able to find them along the way for the most part. At any rate, we are big fans of such books and look forward to talking about one that focuses on a local uh, area Well, the area we live in here, where, let's face it, we're sometimes not as good at tourists as we might be because we just don't check out the tourist attractions, of which there are many. Anyway, that'll be fun in our second segment. Before we start the program, as we like to do with On This Date in History, I do want to note with some degree of relief that in spite of the efforts to beat the war drums and get us involved in a hot war over in Syria... There's been much resistance to this, which we find entirely understandable. And as regards this potential fiasco, I'd like to quote from uh, some rather tongue-in-cheek commentary from an exchange on the web I participated in. Wrote one wag, Personally, I don't care if the CIA gave gas to the rebels or the government bought them from the Germans or Russians or DuPont. If somebody used them, then we have an obligation to bomb somebody. The U.S. maintains vast stockpiles of chemical weapons, so far as I can see, just to serve as a good example to the world of how having them doesn't mean you use them. Oh, you can let Saddam Hussein use them to kill Iranians and dissidents, but that was years ago. Heck, we would never give the Iraqis such weapons now. The intelligence agencies supplying us with the evidence of this crime are, in fact, the same people who are arming the rebels, but that's no reason to imagine anyone would ever allow an atrocity for greater political gain. To imagine so would only feed conspiracy theorists who imagine that Pearl Harbor was let happen or 9-11 was allowed to happen. Preposterous, I say. And just because George Tennant certified Colin Powell's UN WMD speech, there's no reason to imagine they'd ever do that again. I'm sure they've learned that cheaters never prosper. Let's have an air war. We've all seen how precise they are. Remember day one of Gulf War II? The media could hardly contain their excitement in reporting that a blockbuster bomb had just taken out a Baghdad building that Intel sources said might have harbored Saddam Hussein. The newsreaders put down their pom-poms long enough to speculate the war might be as good as over in one blast. Well, Doggone it, all they found were body parts from women and children. Saddam had not been there after all. But maybe this time, they'll blow up Assad. Why not roll the dice? I mean, we do not want to overthink this thing. And while there is some speculation that yours truly was the wag that wrote that, at this point I will neither confirm nor deny it. 
Let's take a detour back into On This Date in History, which in our case today is the 5th of September. It was on September 5th in 1781 that the Battle of Virginia Capes, which was the decisive naval, probably overall battle of the American Revolutionary War, it opened outside Chesapeake Bay between French and British ships. The French victory, three days later, stranded British forces under General Charles Cornwallis on the Yorktown Peninsula in Virginia, leading directly to his surrender. This is something that seems to have been forgotten a few years back when the French were reluctant to join us in the great Iraqi fiasco, leading Congress in the short term to rename the French fries served in their cafeteria as Liberty Fries. Yes, and by the way, apparently after making some noise about how they would support us in Syria, the French are now having some second thoughts. The French probably should have had some second thoughts back in September 5th of 1792, when during their revolution, they elected Maximilien Robespierre to head a delegation to the National Convention. One year later on this date, in 1793, the reign of terror began in France, with Robespierre at the head of the revolution's infamous Committee of Public Safety. More than 300,000 people were arrested, and 17,000 were executed. Well, this is kind of a nasty day in world history. September 5th, 1905, the Russo-Japanese War ended with the signing of the Treaty of Portsmouth, which ceded Russian territory to Japan and later got Teddy Roosevelt a Nobel Peace Prize. And by the way, Radio Parallax has no information on whether the Nobel Committee is reconsidering their award to Barack Obama four years ago. They apparently gave it to him because he wasn't George Bush, which in the long run probably is insufficient cause to grant him that uh, much-coveted prize. Anyway, let's move on. Our quote today comes from John Gunther, who said, If a man's from Texas, he'll tell you. If he's not, why embarrass him by asking? Our quip of the day comes from cartoonist Hank Ketchum, who once said, Flattery is like chewing gum. Enjoy it, but don't swallow it. Our joke of the day is as follows. Question, what's the difference between a wife and a mistress? Answer, about 30 pounds. And now hold on. Part two is, question, what's the difference between a husband and a lover? Answer, about 30 minutes. Our anecdote of the day is that Nikita Khrushchev was censoring Stalin for the 20 million deaths he authorized during his rule in front of a throng of people when a member of the audience shouted, you were an associate of Stalin, why didn't you do anything to stop him? Khrushchev looked out and bellowed, who said that? Silence. Nodding, Khrushchev said, now you know why. Our stat of the day is as follows. According to United States polls, just 9% of voters think Obama should get involved in Syria, while 60% want the U.S. to stay out. And I think right there we may have discovered the reason why we are not rushing headlong into war. Although it is, of course, too early to tell where all this is going. 
But uh, without further ado, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Italian wives. With the news that due to Europe's economic crisis, many Italian husbands can no longer afford mistresses. They quote a 48-year-old lawyer from Rome saying, It really messed up my romantic life. He evidently had to give up his second apartment and thus his mistress. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for making the grade with the news that all 25,000 students who took an entrance exam for the University of Liberia failed. A university official said that the students, quote, lacked enthusiasm, unquote. And uh, that's all we know. We do doubt that enthusiasm was the key missing ingredient. All right, it was also an ugly week last week for printers of periodic tables with the news that a new chemical element reputedly may soon make its debt on the table if the International Unions of Pure and Applied Physics and Chemistry agree that there is at least enough evidence for its existence. Now, supposedly a team at Lund University in Sweden say they have made element 115, which is building on a claim that a Russian group made back in 2004. We would refer you, dear listener, to our discussion on the periodic table, which is on our archives at radioparallax.com. We take the editorial position on this program that slamming together a couple of nuclei and briefly claiming that you have seen evidence for an element that was stable for, you know, a trillionth of a second probably doesn't mean you need to put a new periodic table out. And I would add that that opinion, that the periodic table can be left alone as it was when I was in high school decades ago, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. All right, we'd also note that it was both a bad and ugly week last week for a Muslim Obama conspiracy theory, which alleged that President Obama is in league with the ousted Muslim Brotherhood, which apparently has become widespread on the streets in Egypt. Supporters of the military and many of the youth who helped oust Hosni Mubarak have been pointing to a YouTube video of U.S. Congressman Louie Gohmert, Republican of Texas, who claims that the administration is riddled with Islamist spies. Mr. McMillan? Egyptian citizens, we're pretty sure that uh, Representative Gohmert is wrong. And finally, it was both a good, I suppose, and yet in its own way bad and still further ugly, depending on how you look at it, week last week in Philadelphia after a woman turned up alive nearly two weeks after her family held a funeral and burial for her. Apparently, services for 50-year-old Sherilyn Jackson were held August 3rd in New Jersey. Jackson's mother said the woman in the casket looked just like her daughter except for her nose. She said the family assumed something happened to the nose during the embalming. For her part, Jackson showed up at a mental health facility in Philadelphia a couple weeks back. A spokesman for the Department of Health said Jackson's son and a social worker who knows her had viewed pictures of the dead woman's body and identified it as being her. 
The last news was the buried body is being exhumed in hopes of correctly identifying it. Well, wish them luck with that. All right, and here's four items that we just frankly can't resist from the goofball file. Starting in the fact that it was headline news a couple of days ago that the planet Uranus apparently has its own Trojan asteroid. Now, Trojan asteroids refer to those which tend to orbit in the same orbit as a planet, but just 60 degrees ahead of it or 60 degrees behind it. Jupiter has a bunch of them. Well, what strikes us as weird is that news of this asteroid's discovery was released last April, and yet somehow it was headline news this week. No, we don't know why. We also don't know why anyone would honor alleged actress Kathleen Turner with a Lifetime Award. Mr. McMillan asks, for acting? And yes, for, for acting. Now, I would note that, that Kathleen Turner, apparently, at least in film anyway, has occasionally turned out an adequate performance. But I'm sad to note that I was caught in the theater on two occasions with her up on the stage, once a one-woman show, which caused me to conclude that if Kathleen Turner's an actress, then I'm a nuclear physicist. Now, of course, I'm not a nuclear physicist, which is exactly the point. And uh, I certainly don't consider myself to be a film critic either, although we have talked about the cinema on occasion on this program. But when it comes to reviewing films, I think no item has ever surprised me more than this one, which is that yours truly has had substantial agreement in the reviewing of movies with film critic Adolf Hitler. According to Harper's Magazine this month, Adolf Hitler's responses to films he watched in 1938 and 1939, well, the notes kept by his uh, adjutant were released recently. And although I can only find four films reviewed by Hitler, which I'm familiar with, it does surprise me a bit that I agree with the Fuhrer in his evaluation of all of them. Of course, we should clarify, three of them are Laurel and Hardy films. And the fourth is Tarzan the Ape Man. Hitler's review of Tarzan was bad. It's hard to disagree. But in the Laurel and Hardy selections, which were Swiss Miss, Way Out West, and Blockheads, well, the Fuhrer applauded the first, thought the second one was good, and thought the third, Blockheads, was very good because it presents a lot of very nice ideas and clever jokes. We would like to add there is apparently a Laurel and Hardy fan club in the greater Sacramento area. We've had some thoughts about bringing on the show, and by God, I think we will. And no, we won't put them on the spot about Hitler's positive reviews. All right, here's an item from The Economist that should round out our quartet from the goofball file. To quote a slightly editorialized version, the most expensive coffee in the world is crap. That is not an opinion. It is a fact. To make copy luwak, you must start out with high-quality beans. Then you have to feed them to palm civets, wait while they pass through the animal's guts, having their fleshy exteriors digested as they go, and then be ready to collect them when they come out the other end. The result, when cleaned, fermented, dried, roasted, ground, and brewed, sells for as much as $80 a cup. The reason for this apparently ludicrous price is the sublime effect on the bean's flavor of the chemical reactions they undergo in the civet's intestines. Here's something that we hadn't thought about 
when we reported on this story years ago. Given its high price, a lot of counterfeit and adulterated copy Luwak gets peddled as the real thing. And until now, there's been no reliable way to detect it. But evidently, Elichiro Fukasaki of Osaka University in Japan is planning to change all that. He and his colleagues have developed a chemical test which they believe can reliably detect essence of civet in coffee. Notes the magazine, if Dr. Fukasaki's method is widely adopted, it would certainly weed out the worst excesses of the fraudulent Kopi Luwak market. To which we say, boy, it's high time somebody cracked down on that. And if any of you have ever tried a cup of Kopi Luwak, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We'd like to share your experience with others. And uh, on the last couple programs, we've mentioned that we're going to take a look at an atomic airplane. Expecting some feedback from you, dear listener. And before we discuss the article, let's let's talk about uh, the comments we got in our mailbox. Now, lest some of you doubt that there were ever really plans to build an atomic aircraft, we have James to thank for this. Doug, I saw the nuclear motor for this insane ramjet at Lawrence Radiation Laboratory in 1966. I was just out of the Navy, involved in missiles, and looking for a job. After seeing that thing, I went to work for Fairchild in early Silicon Valley, making the first integrated circuits. I quit working there when I found out I was making parts for the B-58 Hustler, another hydrogen bomb spewer, like the so-called Flying Crowbar. So, back to school at SF State and into the hate for the summer of love, a much-needed change of scene. Thank you for that, James. And thanks to our pal Ed Martin, who chipped in the following. I'm sure I've mentioned my history prof friend who was rebuffed in his inquiries about this program, referring to the atomic plane, told it never existed. Now there's a photo of the site and the remaining bunkers elsewhere on the net. Anyways, let's talk about some of the details. This comes from Uncle John's Unsinkable Bathroom Reader, which was their 21st edition, in an article titled, Atomic Bombs Away. To quote, If you're a history buff, you probably already know that the space race between the U.S. and Soviet Union began October 4th, 1957, when the Soviets beat out the Americans by launching the first satellite, Sputnik. Rockets that could lift satellites into space could also be used to launch nuclear warheads. In fact, the R-7 rocket that launched Sputnik was originally designed to carry nuclear warheads. The fear of falling behind the Soviets in this critical technology it was, is what led the U.S. to create NASA and put the country on a course to the moon in the early 1960s. But back then, who knew for sure whether the U.S. would ever catch up with the Soviet Union in missile technology? What if the Russians pulled so far ahead they developed missiles capable of shooting down American missiles? Well, based on what we've seen from the Star Wars uh, defense initiative, they needn't have worried about that back in the 50s. But they didn't know about anti-missiles and how they might advance. Noted Uncle John, American military planners decided they had to have another type of weapon available if the Soviets ever developed the means to shoot down ICBMs. Now, when an ICBM is launched, it leaves the Earth's atmosphere for a time and then re-enters at a point high above the target. Because of this, any Soviet anti-missile defense system would be aimed skyward to detect incoming missiles. One way to beat such a system would be to use a weapon that entered Soviet airspace at a low altitude, treetop level if possible. It would also have to fly fast, so the Soviets couldn't shoot it down even if they managed to detect it. The effort to come up with such a supersonic low-altitude mission... 
S-L-A-M, or SLAM, became known as Project Pluto. Western designers came up with an 85-foot-long missile carrying anywhere from 14 to 26 nuclear warheads and a ramjet engine powered by an unshielded nuclear reactor powerful enough to generate 50 million watts of electricity. Now, because ramjets only can work at very high speeds, the SLAM would have been launched with conventional rocket boosters, and then the ramjet reactor would have been activated when the missile accelerated up to three times the speed of sound. Once it was fired up, the nuclear reactor would supposedly have given the missile nearly unlimited range. It could have remained aloft at 35,000 feet in a holding pattern, do that for weeks or even months on end. If an attack order was then given, SLAM would have descended to 1,000 feet and proceeded to its first target. When it arrived, it would have ejected one of its warheads through a hatch on top of the missile like a giant flying toaster. In the time it took the warhead to fall to Earth and detonate, SLAM would hopefully have cleared the blast zone and been on its way to the next target, and the next, and so on, until it ran out of warheads. Noted Uncle John's, that's how it was supposed to work on paper. Whether it could ever really be built was questionable. Traveling three to five times the speed of sound in all weather at low altitudes where the air is thicker would have exposed the missile to very high temperatures and atmospheric pressures. The unshielded nuclear reactor would have pushed temperatures even higher, up to about 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. But here's the part I love the best about this entire discussion, and I quote, But a slam could be lethal without launching a single warhead. Traveling at three times the speed of sound at 1,000 feet would have produced a sonic boom strong enough to destroy buildings and kill people on the ground. And the unshielded nuclear reactor would have spewed deadly radiation over the surrounding region. No small consideration since it was expected that SLAM would have to pass over countries allied with the U.S. on its way to the Soviet Union. The SLAM was a flying Chernobyl, so deadly in fact that the designers considered leaving the nuclear warheads out entirely. Yes, it, do- it sounds crazy and it was crazy. That doesn't mean they didn't try to build one, as James witnessed right down in Livermore. Anyway, as we end with this item and still contemplate what might happen over in Syria, Mr. Merlin needs to find some appropriate music, and thankfully I think we have that at hand. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and I promise in our second segment we're going to get out of talking about war and talk about happier stuff. That is to say, local tourism. Stick around. <laughs> 